Anytime we start a new book, if you know me, if you've been around here any length of time, you know how this goes. We're going to spend a lot of time on the history. We're going to spend a lot of time trying to understand it. Because it's easy when we read our Bible to think as 21st century people. But we really have to go back in time to how it was when they were there. When we understand the story, when we understand the context, it's easier to make the application, which is universal, um, to, to all, I believe, people, um, languages, and cultures. So uh, we need to spend a little bit of time. So you've got to bear with me at the beginning here, uh, and I think I can help you get a little bit of grasp. We're going to cover a lot of history real quick in like 10 minutes uh, in the Old Testament. So... Uh, the book and the person we're going to be studying is a guy by the name of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is an Old Testament uh, story. There are three books that are very closely tied together. You could read any one of these three books, and, and the stories uh, are, are, are connected. Um, one is the story of Esther. Um, Esther is a Jewish girl who ends up being queen. Okay, that She happens in this little time bubble that we're going to be talking about Nehemiah. Ezra is another book that is tied to Nehemiah. Uh, And then we have the book, Ezra goes back to help rebuild the temple. And Nehemiah is going to go back and help rebuild the walls. And we'll talk about the difference in a minute. In the Jewish Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. So they're the same book. Um, They actually combine them together. So we need to understand that all of these are, 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 are very, very closely interconnected. Nehemiah basically breaks down very simply. Uh, the first seven chapters, he talks about building the wall. And then the rest of the book talks about building the people. And uh, we'll try to get a little bit of an understanding on, on some of it this morning. Let me throw up a chart. You're not going to be able to see it because it's way too small and I couldn't get it big no matter how I tried. <laughs> and, and let me give you, this is a timeline to give you a little bit of background, okay? So I'm going to go way back in the, in, in the Bible time. The big time, oh, I gave my wife my good clicker. Oh, you're not supposed to do that, are you? Um, forget it. All right. See this little section right here, okay? About 586 B.C. Um, this is when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. The Babylonians came in. They destroyed the temple. They uh, took, ransacked a bunch of stuff. They tore down all of the walls. They took a bunch of people into captivity. If you were to go back in your, if you've been around your Bible for a while, you remember the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel? This is when that happened. Okay? So Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Anazariah, they all go into captivity. They go from Jerusalem 800 miles over to Babylonian territory, okay? Uh, And that is where we start to have a lot of the Jews. What would happen is when you went into a city and you overtook a city, what you would do is you would lay waste to the city. Anything that was valuable, you took. So when they, they would take the gold out of the temple, they would take all of the valuable stuff from the temple, they would go through the houses, take all the valuable stuff. They would then look at the people and they'd go, you look healthy, you come with us, um, you know, you're gorgeous, we can, we can have children with you, you come with us. And basically what they would leave would be people behind who had no benefit to them. Um, so often it would be older people, 
Um, often it would be um, people who had an infirmity. Uh, they would just be left behind. They would take the best, and they would haul them with them. And usually the young men, they would either make uh, either slaves or they would, they would groom them for positions. That's the story of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, and you read about how, how they were taken, away, taken and, and, and groomed. Uh, and then others would just be brought along for They had to have some service. In other words, they had to contribute something or there was no reason to bring them. So they leave back this small group. So that's the story of, of, of 586. Now that plays into this story because what's going to happen is uh, Babylon's going to fall. Um, a guy by the name of Cyrus is going to come in. He's a Persian. Um, he's going to try to gain some favor, so he's going to allow some Jewish people to go back. Um, uh, you have Belshazzar in, in, in between there. Um, you know, that was, remember that Nebuchadnezzar in the hand, writing on the wall and, and uh, everybody. You have the, the member of the gold tower and Daniel and the splitting off of the Medes and the Persian. You have that starting to play out. So um, that happens. What happens is uh, he allows some of the uh, people to return under Zerubbabel. They actually allow them to start to rebuild the temple. They go to start to rebuild the walls, and the Samaritans, we're going to talk about those a couple chapters in Nehemiah, come along and stop the work. And so they ended up with, there ends up being a decree. They can't build any of the walls outside for another 15 years. Um, under Darius the Mede, the temple's rebuilt. Um, so understand now they've got a temple standing there, but, but no walls. Um, it sits for about 70 years. Um, then what happens is um, a guy by the name of uh, Erxes comes along and becomes, becomes king. Uh, the book of Esther, that's where this story comes into play. And then um, a guy by the name of Artaxerxes, he's another king, he comes along. And about seven years into his reign, what happens is there's some, there's some problems. And the Persians, are, 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 they're in control of everything in the world. They're the world leader right now. Everybody's under their rule. The Egyptians start messing around and causing some problems, and so Artaxerxes realizes it would be nice to have a buffer closer to Egypt. So he actually allows some Jewish people to return. Um, Ezra goes back um, with a small group of people to kind of reestablish Jerusalem again. Then... About 20 years into his reign, Nehemiah comes onto the picture. Okay? So that's where we pick up the story. Um, go to the next slide, guys. Um, let me show you where, where we're talking about. You see where this thing starts. That's Jerusalem. And when Daniel and, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were taken into captivity, they go all the way up there, and they end up over here in Babylon. Uh, and so this is where it started. Our story is going to take place in a place called Shusha, which is all the way straight over into there. And the thing with Susha is that's the winter palace, okay? Uh, it's kind of like they had a, you know, your snowbirds, you get this. you got, like, your home, and then you got your winter place, and, okay. <laughs> the rich kings of that day did that, okay? Um, so... So anyway, so they would go, you know what? I just don't want to mess with the Babylonian winter. Let's head over to Shusha. So... Uh, Esther, the story of Esther, it takes place in Shusha, okay? 
So it, it, it's happening over there. Um, one of the things that's going to become a focus of this story is the walls being built. Okay? And to us, that doesn't mean much, but hopefully it will by the end of this morning. Um, let me show you the kind of walls we're talking about. Um, these are what the walls around the city of Jerusalem look like. Go to the next slide, guys. Um, there we are. Okay? And, and, and you'll get to see, you see how, this is a kind of a, a restoration kind of thing that, that there. At that time, this is about how big the temple was. That big mount up there, that was the temple mount. That's where the temple would have been built. But if you'll notice, it's like wall, slope all the way down. Um, do I have a fourth picture or not? I don't know if I put that one in there or not. Did I? Yes. These are the kind of walls we're talking about. Okay. Uh, these are kind of walls that we're talking about. We're not talking about, oh, we're going to go put up a retaining wall this high. Okay. Hey, by the way, how long did it take you guys? How many hours you got in that project out there? Okay. They got about 20 hours in that wall out there. These guys built, here's how magnificent, here's, here's the level of project that Nehemiah took on. He's going to build somewhere between one and a half and two and a half miles of walls in 52 days. Okay? So that's why this is a pretty incredible story. All right? So that gives you some background to understand a little bit what we're going to talk about. All right? So uh, with that in mind, let's, uh, let's dive into it. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to get the first four verses this morning, and then that's all the far I want to go. Here's what it says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chishlu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. Then Hannah, Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. All right? Let's walk through it and make sure we understand. Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Uh, Nehemiah was probably born in exile. What that means is that he was probably born in Babylon or, or Shusha. Um, uh, he probably would not have had a lot of experience at all with Jerusalem. Um, it says, his name is Nehemiah. It actually means the Lord comforts came to pass in a month of Chishlev, that's November, December. That would be our November, December. In the 20th year that I was in Shushan, the citadel. Um, so what you need to understand is, is, is at that time, this was the capital of the world. Now, i got to fast forward to the end of the chapter because there's an important aspect of Nehemiah you need to know. And that was Nehemiah's job at Shusha, or Shushan, either one. It's the same place. Um, and he was the king's cupbearer, all right? Now, that doesn't mean anything to us. But you have to understand, in this culture, if you were a world leader, if you were a top guy, there are a lot of people that want to take you out. Because if they take you out, they could change the world. I mean, if you're the world leader, if you're the leader of the known world, and we can take you out, guess what? Somebody else could come in and change the direction of the world. So... The, the leaders, the kings, in, particularly in this day, had around them a, a group of people that could be trusted unequivocally. These are people who you, you, your life is in their hand. We have it similar in our culture with our secret service, in that a president has a, a, a group of people around him constantly. 
trying to keep him alive because people often want to take them out. And so this is what you have. So there has to be, now they didn't have people with, with, with guns and rifles and stuff like that in that day. Um, that mean, they would have people, they'd have soldiers around them with swords. But the bottom line is, <clears throat> one of the easiest ways to take somebody out was to poison them. All I had to do was get close enough, put a couple of drops in a drink, and move on. I didn't have to get a weapon in there. I didn't have to sneak in a dagger. I didn't have to uh, get close enough to choke them to death. Or All I had to do was get close enough to their drink. So one of the ways they protected themselves was they would get somebody to always take a sip first. Now, just think about this for a minute. How much trust do you have in that person that they're not going to put something in your drink in between? And how committed are you to the idea that you may lose your life by taking a drink? See, the cupbearer is one of the most trusted and respected people in the life of the king. It was a position in which you found yourself at meals with some of the finest people in all the world. Kings, queens, princes. Money was no object. You are... So the typical person who had this job was incredibly polished. They were incredibly well-versed. They were incredibly well-groomed. They looked sharp. You know, I mean, you know, can you imagine the, the, the president's secret service, you know, and the guys all look like slobs? No, you know, they, they, they pick people based on, you know, they profile them. They have to have a certain look. Um, they have to have a certain demeanor. They have to have a certain pedigree to get to that point. This person is incredibly trusted. And this, by the way, was Nehemiah's job. So Nehemiah would have been rubbed shoulders with some of the most important people in all of the world. Nehemiah would have been uh, Mr. Spit and Polish. He would have known how to handle, how to handle the drink, how to hold it to, give it to him, how to test it ahead of time, how to be right there if the king wanted something to make sure that it happened. And this is a pretty important position. And so this is the world of Nehemiah. And a guy comes along, Hananiah, there's some debate on, is it an actual brother? Is it like a Jewish brother? Um, I I tend to think, it doesn't matter, but I tend to think that it's an actual brother, brother. But um, he had been in Jerusalem. And uh, notice what it says. It says, Hananiah came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now here's a question for you. Why would he care? I mean, come on. The guy has it made. He's eating the finest food in all the world every day. He's surrounded by incredible wealth at every turn. He has a life that people could only dream of. And he's concerned about some city 800 miles away? Why? Why? I mean, a city that he's probably never even been raised in or been around, hasn't had much use for at all? Why? And he's concerned. And notice what it says. And they said to me, the survivors left into captivity in the province are in great um, distress. Literally, um, here's some translation um, uh, of the word. Misery, calamity. And reproach, literally sharp, cutting, piercing, penetrating. 
And he says, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now listen, this was not news in 586 B.C., but we're like 140 years past this thing now. And again, some people think that maybe it was, he's talking about when the walls, that Nehemiah assumed that the walls had been built since Ezra had been back there for a while, but he comes to find out that they're still not built. And um, the gates are burned with fire. You have to understand that although those walls were massive stone walls, you still had to have ways in and out of the city. So what they would do is they would build gates. Uh, we would call them today doors to our home. You have doors in your house that let you come in and out. Um, can you imagine if I went to your house and we took all the walls down and we took all the doors off? How well would you sleep tonight? How well would you eat this afternoon when you went home? Okay, that was their world. So what would happen is they lived outside the city. They would, the city was, based, but again, in the middle of it, there was the temple. There was the church. There was the gathering place. So the people who would go to synagogue would walk into the city, and they would go to the synagogue, and then they would walk out, and there's no walls, there's no city. So what, you're Nehemiah, and you hear this. What do you do? Hey, you know what? Here, um, here's my credit card. Why don't you go put a couple hundred dollars on there and help them at the city? It's not what he does. Notice what it does. Notice what he does in the next passage. And this is it's where we're going to end today. So it was when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now you're going to find out that when we get to chapter 2, he does this for four months. For four months, this breaks his heart. For four months, it turns his world upside down. Why? I mean, I'm not trying to be insensitive here, but you're crying over a wall. Really? You're fasting over a wall. Really? But yet, it is such a burden to Nehemiah. And I think I'll help you understand why in a minute. But that he sits down when he hears it, and he goes... I just can't comprehend this. Now, again, this is a guy who's going to leave this meeting and, and go have filet mignon. And then tomorrow he's going to get up, and the next day, lobster is on the menu. And then the next day, they're flying in Bobby Flay to make chicken wings. And then the next day, they got another chef coming in who's going to cook a dinner for him. And this guy's upset because people in Jerusalem don't have walls around their city? I mean, really? That he's going to stop eating? And again, we're not talking about, you know what, I'm going to skip the hot pocket today. We're talking about some serious, serious, serious commitment here. Because this breaks his heart. I want to stop there because, because, first of all, there's enough practical application there that I think we're done when I get it done. So um, let me just talk about some things that I think help us apply some things for us just from, from where we are in the story. Next week, we're going to look at his prayer, which is incredible. It teaches a lot about prayer. 
Um, we can learn a lot from it, but, and that's what we're going to look at next week. But I, I just want to stop right here this morning and pull out a couple of, of things for us to, to think about as we go into our week. It seems ironic that Nehemiah is so burdened about walls. But you see, in that culture, that, that was your security. See, if there are no walls, any enemy can come into your city, day or night. So what happens is, in that culture, that's why when you, when you took over a city, one of the first things you did was you busted up the gates, you knocked down the walls, and you took everything of value. That way, guess what? Anybody could come in. And Nehemiah understood that. He understood that, you know what? If you've built this temple and you're going there to worship and the walls are all down, what's to keep somebody from coming in and wrecking the temple again? The people were so scared that they lived out. You're going to see us later when we get into the book. The people were living outside of the city. They'd all moved outside of the city. No one wanted to stay in the city because it was kind of safer to be out in your own little acreage somewhere than to be in the city because it was such a big target. So everybody kind of moved out into the city or away from the city. And so Nehemiah is sitting there, and the people are, it's interesting. The text says they're miserable. They're scared. They're paranoid. They, they, they are petrified, and it's, 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 it's affecting their daily life. And he says, and when Nehemiah asks about how the people are, he asks a tough question, and, and let, don't ask tough questions unless you want good, an, uh, honest answers. And so Nehemiah listens to him, and he hears that, you know what, this is bad. This is bad. The remnant's surviving, but barely. They're just barely hanging on. The people that came back, they're helping, but they ain't helping that much. And Nehemiah hears this, breaks his heart. Because you see, when the walls get up, now people feel safe again. People feel secure again. The fear gets minimalized. There's a great lesson here for us because I, I, I see this happening within our culture. I see it happening within Christianity. I see it with, happening within people's lives. What happens is if you're not careful, if you don't establish some walls in your life, if you don't establish some boundaries, what happens is you get yourself in trouble. Some of the fear that some of the turmoil, some of the struggle that you have in your life, in all honesty, it's because you've let walls get torn down. I watch people who set up strong moral walls, and they, they come up against a situation, and they let them get torn down. And before they know it, they're dealing with all kinds of issues that they never thought they would deal with before. Why? Because they took the wall down or they went over the wall. Um, I watch people do this all the time, and, and they wonder, we're doing it as a nation right now. What happened? We're eroding the very foundation of our country. And what we're doing is we're stepping back and going, wow, I don't understand. Why is this happening? It, it's happening because we're taking down, and I'm not talking about the wall, like Mexico wall. I'm talking about walls, the foundations, the solid thing that our country was built on. And then we wonder, why in the world is everything going south? It's going south because... We have, we have removed the walls. We've removed the boundaries that we had set up for us as a country, as a nation. I watch people do it in marriages all the time. I watch people all of a sudden, they get into a marriage situation, and they're like, you know what? Um, okay, now that I've got them, we don't have to work on our relationship anymore. So all of a sudden now, 
people who are, you know, and, and you've seen this, you know, you've seen this, you know, people get, you know, oh, we're so in love. I can't wait to spend another moment with them. Oh, we've been away for five hours. And you look at that, and you kind of go, oh, wait till they've been married like 30-some-odd years. They'll get the hang of it, you know. It's, it's you know, five hours is kind of a breather, um, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's crazy. Life is so absurd on stuff like this. I think it's crazy. When you're, when you're young, you can't spend enough time together, and then you do your whole career thing, and then at the end of the world, if you're still together as a, as, as a couple and you still have your health and, and each other, then all of a sudden you can't get apart from each other because you're so dependent on each other that now you spend all your time together. Um, you know, it's kind of this odd circle of things that, that happens in life. But, you know, I watch, I watch people, and, they, and so early in the relationship, they protected the relationship. They said, let's spend time together. Let's date. Oh, oh, you like ice cream. I'm going to take you out for ice cream. Oh, you like the movie. I'm going to take you out to the movie. Oh, I'm gonna, and, and they have these great things they build into their relationship. And then what happens? They let the walls get torn down, and then it's like, oh, we don't need to spend time together. We're married. And then 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years goes by, and then they sit there and go, I don't understand why we don't have anything in common anymore. It's because you didn't work on a relationship all along. You took the wall down, and you let the wall get broken down, and you never rebuilt it. That's why. I watch people do this all the time. <laughs> they want people to like them. So their solution is, in order for people to like me, I'm going to say yes to everybody. I can't say no. Yes, you can. You can set up a boundary with your time to say no. Okay? I, I saw a great deal this week, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to paraphrase it. But what, basically, here's what it said. There is nothing that I own that I bought with money. He said, there's nothing that I own that I bought with money. Everything that I own, I bought with time. Because I put time into a job that gave me money that I used to purchase something. But the real cost was time. And I thought, you know what? There's an element, there's an incredible element of truth in that. And I watch people that have never set the boundary to say, what am I going to invest my time in? And so they say yes to everybody. And you know what you'll find is there are certain people who will take advantage of that. And the next thing you know, you're going, I, can't, I, I just don't understand why I'm so frustrated. It's because you have no time boundaries. You have no boundaries for your time. You have, I, I watch people do this with jobs and careers. I watch my dad do this for 30-some-odd years with Texaco. When my dad took the first promotion with Texaco, when we moved to, um, from Kentucky to Ohio, from that point on, what Texaco was basically saying to my dad was this. Look, every time we give you a promotion, you have two choices. You either take it and do what we're asking you to do and move where we're asking you to move, or you're flatlined from here on out in the company. You'll never go any higher. You'll always be at this salary. You'll always be at this pay scale. This will always be your job. And so I watched a dad spend his entire life 
taking, and again, this was the culture of the time. You, you moved yourself up the ladder. And I watched my dad do that. My dad did very, very well. From, from a guy who started out on the loading docks driving trucks to a guy who was in charge of trucks everywhere from Texas all the way to North Carolina, I mean, I watched him make, I watched him do that thing. And I listened to him over and over and over again every time I would visit for the last 10 years. Say, I should have spent time with my family. And it killed him that he had spent all the time for company and missed the time on his family. I think I had a great life. I don't resent it at all. I, you know, we lived at a nice standard of living. I had all the stuff that, you know, um, I, I, my dad, I got to spend some time with him and stuff like that. But he resented it. It just killed him. It ate him up. I, don't, I got tired of going down there listening to him apologize. Because he realized, he came to a point that realized he never set a boundary that said, okay, you know what, this is all I'm going to allow my job to take from me. I want to encourage you to take a look at the walls that may have tumbled down or walls you need to put up. Because some of you are frustrated right now because you don't have any walls up. You don't have walls up to protect your marriage. You don't have walls up to protect your children. You don't have, by the way, kids, time out. Teenagers, kids, little kids, big kids, old kids, college kids, all you kids. You understand what your parents' job is? To put up walls. That is their job. And parents, if you're not putting up walls, you're not doing your job. Okay? Okay? Why? Your job is to put up walls. You go, well, they'll just climb over it. Fine. Then it's on them. But your job is to... Think about it for a minute. Okay? Think about it for a minute. Those of you that have cattle, you go home and take down all the fences? What do you do? You spend a lot of time making fences, fixing fences, putting up fences, making sure the cattle stay where they are. Why? Because you have a liability, responsibility, and you want to keep them. They're important to you. And yet we come to our children and we go, you know, I just think they'll find their own way. I mean, come on. You don't raise your animals that way. Why are you raising your kids that way? And kids, you go, well, you don't understand. My parents, they're like, they only give me like this much space. Find and eat in that space. Play in that space. You know, I was driving, driving to Sioux City the other day. I thought somebody had turned a bunch of uh, goats or sheep. I think it was goat. It was goats. Yeah, they got the horn thing. So the goats. Um, <laughs> they turned a bunch of goats loose in this pasture. Nothing had been in that pasture. Grass everywhere. I mean, just gorgeous grass. You know where the goats were? They were at the edge of the fence, and one dumb goat <laughs> had its head stuck all the way through the barbed wire as fast as it could, reaching way out there, trying to grab stuff, trying to grab weeds. All it had to do was pull its head out, turn around, and it had, it had all kinds of acres of grass. And I'm looking at it going, what a dumb goat. I watch people do it all the time, too. God says, here's the line, here's the fence, here's the wall, and people get as close as they can to it. And so the question they come to, Pastor, I just want to know, does God allow this? Why do you want to get that close? 
Why do you want to get that close? When you've got so much other area to, 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 to be and do and experience and enjoy. But see, some of us, we don't get that. And, and I just want to encourage you, because some of you, the frustration and the, the turmoil and the struggle that you feel right now, it's because you don't have a wall or because you've let a wall get torn down. Nehemiah's broken hearted, and he says, let's get that wall built. Let's get those people safe. Let's get the gates back up. Let's have these people so they don't have to feel like they're feeling right now. And that's why he's so burdened. Second idea here that you see in this is he was, he was genuinely, genuinely concerned and brokenhearted over this. This becomes a priority in his life. This is what made him cry. Let me ask something. What makes you cry? Real men don't cry. You're lying. Because I know real men who do. Okay? Um, and, and if you're, you take great pride in the fact that you don't ever cry, that you never let anything get to you, then you know what? You've got a wall that needs to come down. Okay? Because, yeah, we all have those moments that we need to grieve. We all have those moments that we need to that something reaches in and touches our heart. Here's my question. The thing that reaches in and touches your heart, how is it, how, how much of a priority is that in the kingdom of God? See, I, I think we lose, it, it becomes kind of silly in our little world. You know, um, I, I watch people, and, and again, I, I love animals. I'm not an animal lover if you know what i mean okay okay i mean i i understand that you know i think animals have their place and people have their place and 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 and, and i know i'm gonna get in trouble you're gonna don't send me an email animals are not people okay um sometimes they're easier than people but Animals are not people. And you're like, oh, no, 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 my dog, cat, iguana is, is like a people to me. Um, okay. Um, but, but here's the thing. I, I know people that they can look at an animal that is suffering or abused or whatever else, and they can get moved to do something. But they can look at people in a third world country and it doesn't bother them. There's a disconnect there. There's something something that's missing there. Because the most important thing to the heart of God is people. I mean, it's why Jesus came. And, 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 And Christ was explicit when he said... If you love me, you love other people. And and if you're going to tell me you love me and you don't like other people, then you're a liar. You don't love me. Because me and people were like this. And, And when Nehemiah hears that people are struggling and hurting and confused and scared and on the borderline of of, of, of despair. He makes it a priority in his life. 
He starts, he starts praying. He starts fasting, turning down great, great meals. He starts weeping every, every day this consumes his life. You're going to see that. When we get to chapter 2, it consumes his life to the point that after four months, he can't cover it up anymore. And even the king says, something's going on. What's, 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 what's bothering you? It consumed his life. He was, it became that much of a priority. And here's my question to you. What has that kind of priority in your life? That will tell you a lot about you. It'll tell you a lot about your relationship with the Lord. And, and the other thing is this. When he hears the truth, what does he do? Does he call a bunch of friends and say, hey, come here, I need to talk to you about this. Let's see if we can figure this out. Where does he go first? He prays. He prays. We're going to look at the prayer next week. Phenomenal prayer. Great template for us as far as praying. But he prays. Here's my question to you. Where do you go first? You go look at, up on the Internet? You go talk to your buddy or your friend or call somebody on the phone or send out an email? Or, no, here's my question. Is prayer to God the first place you go? Because one of the things that you see about a godly leader, a leader that God uses is, it's one of the first places they go. And, and I just want to challenge you, because I think sometimes it's like, it's kind of like, you ever seen those, those fire things where it's like, in case of fire, break glass? I think for some of us, it's like, when all else has failed, pray. When you haven't gotten the answer in 30 seconds or less or 10 days or you've exhausted all other resources here, knock on the glass and pray. Nehemiah goes there first. In fact, he goes there before he even talks to the king. He spends four months in prayer. And it's fascinating because when the king asks him some very pointed questions very quickly, you know what? He's got an answer. You know why he's got an answer? Because he's been searching the heart of God for four months. So he knows what God wants him to do, and he knows what he needs in order for God to get it, use him, and he has been praying about it. And I think sometimes we forget that. You're struggling at work? Question, how much time have you spent praying about? Struggling in your marriage? How much time have you spent praying about it? Struggling with those kids? How much time have you been spent praying about it? Struggling with neighbors? Prayer? Struggling with whatever it is that's got a hold on your life? Prayer? Why do we go there last? Why don't we go there first? And that's one of the great things you learn about this guy. He knows right off the bat, first place to go for my struggle, my problem, my burden, my whatever, I'm going to pray about it. And that becomes important foundation because what you need to understand, this is the thing. Nehemiah is a great book on leadership, but you want to know what it's more importantly about? Nehemiah is a great book about a godly man who leads. He leads well because he follows God, not because he's a brilliant leader. 
He leads because he is in tune and in step with God every step of the way. And you're going to watch that. You're going to watch that unfold. And you're going to see this guy make some incredible decisions that really allow him to do the impossible in the day. Why? Because, again, this is foundation to him. One of the first things you're going to see about him is prayer. And, and that's important. So I end with this. Nehemiah shows us the value of taking our problems to God first. He has a tender heart for others. He focuses on the long term. He desires for God to use him, and he seeks the best way to be used by God. God wants the same thing for each of us this week. So let him use us. Let's pray. Lord, help us. God, it's easy sometimes to get overwhelmed. It's easy sometimes to spend so much time on the problem, to spend so much time on trying to figure out an answer, Lord, that we forget that uh, we need to go to you first with it. So, Lord, help us. Lord, for walls that have been torn down or broken down in our lives. Lord, would you help this week to be the week that we start to rebuild some of those? Lord, for situations and circumstances where, um, Lord, our, our priorities have kind of gotten messed up. And Lord, we're, we're driven every day by that which is urgent, not that which is important. So help us this week to do the important things. Help us to get our priorities in such a line, Lord, that they, uh, they reflect the things that you value, things that have an eternal nature and not a temporary one. So use us this week, and we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise these things we ask in your name. Amen. Um, let's